Hi, friends, and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Leonard, and we are here to ask the question, what does good work mean to you? We'll explore the values that drive us, the tensions we wrestle with, and ultimately how we connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment in our lives. Sound heavy? Nah. Let's lighten up and dive in. I am here with Max Rosencrantz, my friend, someone that I admire greatly and whose presence I appreciate in my life. And before I read your official bio, I will say that I find you to be one of the most present, direct, solutions-oriented folks that I know. Case in point, this very morning, we were meant to record this episode via Zoom. Technical difficulties abounded, if that is a word. And you were quick to fix us up. And here we are in person, which is even better, in a podcast studio and just looking for solutions efficiently and in a relaxed manner, which can be very disarming, but is a welcome change from most people. (laughs) So I'm really glad to see you again and to be here together. And folks, if you do not know Max, Max Rosencrantz is a coach and a guide for those who are seeking a deeply fulfilling life. He helps people change their behaviors and emotions so that ease and joy and flow become their default state of being. You've really devoted your life to this path of awakening and want to pass that on to others. And in your previous life, which is really still this life, but you made a pretty big pivot. You have a prior career as an engineer working with Fortune 100 companies and startups, uh, working on everything from cool things like 3D printers to self-lacing shoes. That would have been useful in my house this morning. The world's highest performance scuba diving scooter, a set of premium noise-canceling headphones, and a VR game controller for an amusement park. So you have, in my view, the brain of an engineer and the heart of a monk in training. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Outside of your work as a coach, you also the co-founder and creative director for Rocky Mountain Rights, an organization devoted to helping young men in the Colorado Front Range area become healthy, empowered leaders in society. And your current passion and kind of line of inquiry these days is helping people deprogram and rewire the unconscious beliefs and conditionings that keep us stuck in unfulfilling patterns. Bravo. And I can't wait to unpack that because I know that we all have those no matter how, quote unquote, hard we try to untangle some of those things. So can't wait to learn more about that. But first, welcome Max Rosencrantz. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Me too. It's a pleasure. So thanks for being here on the Good Work podcast series. I wondered if to start, you might be able to just share a little bit about your path to pivoting from the engineering world into what you do now. What was that like for you? And how did that all unfold? Yeah. So there's a story here, a specific story that I will tell. But before I tell that story, I'll give the overview. Great. The overview is I became disenchanted and burned out in my engineering career because it wasn't good work for me at the time. My health wasn't in order. My mental health wasn't in order. I was working 
harder than I could sustain. I didn't understand myself well enough to to work at a pace that worked for me. And I kind of jumped ship a number of years ago and have spent the time since then working on myself, working on my own healing and learning how to help other people. And the moment that really changed everything for me was in June of 2018, I was sitting in the back of an Uber on the way from Beaverton to the Portland airport in stop and go traffic. I wasn't worried about missing the flight, but I'd been up since about four in the morning. I wasn't going to get home until like 11 or 12 that night. And I was cooked both from that day in particular and just from life in general Mm -hmm. uh, in that season of life. Yeah. And I was worn down and the Uber driver was speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, you have one job, man. Drive the car. The traffic in front of you isn't changing what it's doing. Why are you doing this? And I'm just stewing, stewing in the backseat, thinking about what a terrible driver this guy is, how, oh, my life is so miserable and it's everybody else's fault. And I tried to ignore it. It was my default strategy at the time. And then eventually I got pissed off enough that I sat up and I was going to give this guy a piece of my mind. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this shiny blue object on the steering wheel. And it didn't compute for me. And it was a good thing that it didn't compute for me because it caused me to stop. And so I asked him what it was. I held my tongue for just long enough to ask him, what is that shiny blue thing on the steering wheel? And he turns to me and he says, oh, I have polio. My legs don't work. I'm driving the car using this attachment where the brake pedal uses the blue handle and the gas pedal uses my thumb. And it just shut me right up. Yeah. And in that, I had just such a profound awakening in that moment to the fact that what was in my head, the reality that existed in my head and the reality that existed out there in the real world were so wildly different that it just cracked me open. Mm. So that's in many ways the, the origin story of Coach Maximum, the current iteration of who I am as a human being. And from there, I've just gone down the rabbit hole time and time again to find where is reality different from my perception? Mm-hmm. Because the more that I can get those two things to agree with one another, the happier I am, the more joyful I am, the more easily I can connect to purposeful and fulfilling work. Yeah. And so that's my passion. That's what I do for myself and others. Beautiful. And I can picture you sitting in the back of that Uber, but I can also, it's very hard to imagine the person that you are today reacting in that kind of way, which is just a testament to your own journey and the work that you've done and that you want to share. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. And once you had that moment of realization and you said it cracked you open, what happened after that? So once you were cracked open, you had this kind of epiphany that you wanted to do something differently or be in a different way. How did that next step reveal itself when you knew something needed to change? Did you feel like you knew what the next right thing was right away? Or did it take you a little while to figure that out? Yes. (laughs) So I was working full time as an engineer. So I approached it as an engineer in the beginning. Mm. I researched things. I looked to the experts in the subject. I read all the personal development and self-help books I could get my hands on. 
And I worked very much from the outside in. Mm -hmm. So I worked on getting my environment in order. And then I worked on getting my physical health in order. And so the journey for me has been one step at a time, moving more and more inward. And now I focus pretty much exclusively on the inner realm Mm -hmm. because that's where we have the most leverage and it's the most exciting. But yeah, so it's each iteration has sort of revealed itself as I've mastered the previous one. Say more things about leverage. When you say in the inner realm, when we turn towards ourselves and we work from the inside out, which is also a wonderful book that you've recommended to me, The Inside Out Revolution. Mm, Yeah. When we do that, tell me more about what you mean when you say we have more leverage there. Yeah. The way that I like to think about this often is at our core, well, at our core, we're a spiritual being of some sort. We're a soul. I don't work directly at that layer yet. But just outside of that, we have our human conditioning. Mm. And at the core of our human conditioning is, as far as I understand, our belief systems, the paradigms in which we operate. Mm -hmm. And from each belief that we have stem many, many thoughts. All day long, we're thinking. So one belief, if you plant one belief, you may reap 10 thoughts or 100 thoughts or 1,000 thoughts every day. And from our thoughts are generated our actions. So you're thinking many things and then doing things based on the thoughts that you have. And from our actions, we get our outcomes, our circumstances. Our results are dependent on what we do. And this is, as far as I understand, it's sort of an exponential curve. Hmm. One belief 10 or 100 thoughts, hundreds of actions, and finally the thousands of little intricate pieces of our circumstances and outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when we work on the circumstances directly, we're battling against thousands or millions of little things that have already come to fruition. When we work on the actions, you know, you're still dealing with hundreds of different little things. When we work on the thoughts, slightly better. Meditation is very useful. When we work on the beliefs, We're just dealing with one thing and one thing that, as it turns out, is very predictable in how it lives in the brain and how we work with it in the brain. So you take care of one belief and it clears out hundreds of thoughts and thousands of micro actions and thousands, if not upon thousands of the little everyday circumstances and experiences that we have. So as an engineer, I like efficiency. (laughs) And I'd rather work on one thing than (laughs) 10,000 things. I don't blame you. That seems much more approachable and manageable and a lot less overwhelm. Yeah. So just for fun, let's imagine that you're working with someone who is in that kind of liminal space, knowing that they want to make a change of some kind and they want to turn towards their next right thing. And, you know, my personal curiosity at the moment is around, you know, good work and what it means and what that concept means to us and how we connect the dots between achieving the things that we want to achieve and actually feeling fulfilled doing it. So imagine that you're working with someone who wants to find, say, more fulfillment in their work or more fulfillment in their ability to feel that they are doing good, quote unquote, making a difference in the world, but they're searching. And maybe they have a fundamental belief that 
they don't have enough time. The core belief is I don't have enough time to be able to give my energy and resources in a way that will actually make a difference that has a measurable impact attached to it. I don't have enough time. How would you work with that one belief? I don't have enough time. It could equally be, I don't have the resources yet, or I don't have the financial security yet, or right. it could be any number of things, but let's work with, I don't have enough time. What would you do with someone who was struggling with that particular belief? And if you want, you can walk me through the process. (laughs) Yeah. So there's two parts to the answer, two main categories to the answer. The direct answer is with that belief or any belief like it, what we're searching for is what are the experiences that the person is using as the data that supports that conclusion? And usually it's the earliest experiences that a person has. So if we're directly with the belief, I don't have enough time or there's never enough time, mm-hmm. we'd be looking for what are the experiences that the person had at a young age where they were always crunched for time. Mm-hmm. And then when we activate those experiences, we can rewrite the meaning of those experiences. The very simple overview here would be maybe back then you didn't have enough time because of certain factors that were specific to the time period. Maybe back then you didn't have access to Zoom. Maybe back then you didn't have access to chat GPT. Maybe back then you didn't have access to any of the specific tools and or skills. But that doesn't mean that that would be true forever. So that's directly how we work on that belief. And Mm -hmm. if someone told me the belief they had was, I don't have enough time, I would say that's very nice. What are you spending your time on currently? And then what we really do is we'd uncover what are the beliefs that are leading them to the behaviors that they're doing Mm -hmm. that are taking up all their time right now? Because usually what we'll find is that I don't have enough time is actually a front. And hiding behind I don't have enough time is either self-esteem, I'm not good enough, I'm not, I'm going to fail here, or There's other things sucking their time and energy that they're not passionate about. And those are the things that we want to address the beliefs that are resulting in them doing those other things. So they may have the belief, what makes me lovable Mm -hmm. is having other people think well of me. And as a result, they spend 10 hours a week volunteering for a project they don't care about. Well, if they get those 10 hours back, they definitely have enough time now. Mm. But we need to address whatever beliefs are resulting in them doing that project that they're not passionate about or doing that job that they're not passionate about. And is it safe to say that if we were to substitute spending their time on things that they are not passionate about with spending our time on something that does not align with our values, could you approach it in with the same process? If someone's looking at how am I spending my time and does it align with what I believe my values are. Mm. You know, my values are, I'll just speak for myself, right? My values are to do the best that I can do to repair the world in my own small way, however I can, whenever possible. And that's enough, right? But am I actually spending my time in a way that's reflective of my values? Could you kind of unpack that through a similar process? Yes, we do something similar. Mm-hmm. 
And the comment that I would make here is what we spend our time on is the best indicator of what our values are in my understanding. Mm -hmm. Dr. Demartini talks about this and I found his work to be useful. But yeah, if you take an inventory of what you actually spend your time on, that will tell you what you value. Mm -hmm. Not the things you say you value, not the things you tell other people you value, but what you actually spend your time on. And there's a layer here that's beliefs and conditionings and that you can change. Mm. So you may, a person may value getting things perfect because of a belief. At their core, they may not value that. Their spirit may not value perfectness. Mm -hmm. But as their human thing, they have a belief that says what makes me good enough is doing things perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so they do things perfectly. That's how they spend their time. Until you work on that belief system, it becomes nearly impossible to win back that time Mm. from the part of you that wants to do things perfectly. Yeah, so I would ask a person, What are you actually spending your time on? And what do you say you want to be spending your time on? And then we look at the gap between those two things. And the gap between those two things tells us what are the beliefs and the conditionings and the things that are blocking them. And then we work on that. Got it. And you keep peeling the onion. And you keep peeling the onion. (laughs) And you keep peeling the onion, even though onions can make you cry sometimes. Well, that's actually a really good point. Mm. As you peel the onion, you're letting go. Mm-hmm. Grief and growth go hand in hand in my book. Mm-hmm. Because every time you evolve as a person, you have to let go of something else. Yeah. And there's a process of grieving, of sadness. And so that that limits a lot of people. Mm. The unwillingness or the being scared to be sad or the unwillingness to be sad will block you eventually. Mm. So it's an important component of the process as I understand it. Which I I think that's what makes your perspective so unique sometimes is because you have this engineering background and correct me if I'm wrong, but typically folks who are data-driven, detail-oriented, right, interested in kind of linear efficient processes. It's not often that the Venn diagram of engineers overlaps with deep inner work. That may be untrue. That may just be my perception. Again, if I'm trying to efficiently make my way from doing or being one sort of way or doing one sort of type of work in the world into a new iteration of myself in the way that you did, why spend all of this time on my inner work and my feelings? What would you say to someone who is mm. has some resistance around doing that type of inner work and feels that it is inefficient? And I think you've already touched on this with the absolute efficiency of dealing with core beliefs, right? But what would you say to someone who may have some resistance to dropping into more of a inner work, meditative process, a creative process, something that's not externally measurable as productive or what we would consider productive. I run into that a lot in conversation and in different people that I talk to and really curious about how we connect those dots or what that resistance might be all about. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. So. I would ask the person what they want. What do they really want? And I would guide them Mm. using questions 
into an awareness of the benefits of doing the inner work, doing the emotional work, if they're open to it. And if they're not open to it, that's okay. The resistance may be there. I mean, resistance is is actually just more information. Resistance is telling them, telling me, telling anybody that there's a perception, a belief that that work is going to be harmful. And for a lot of people, they'd have a belief something to the effect of it's dangerous to express my emotions. A lot of people grew up in households where when they were emotional, they got negative feedback. And so let the person be where they're at. And if the discomfort of staying there becomes great enough, or if the inspiration around getting to the next thing becomes great enough, then they'll become ready to dig in deeper um, and do that inner work and enter the emotional realm more. To the person that's listening and is on the fence maybe and is curious about it, I might ask, I might invite you to ask yourself, what are you afraid would happen if you were to enter the emotional realm? And that's an honest, direct question. And see what the answer that comes is. And that will tell you where your work is. Because for some people, that's the starting point. Do that work first, unblock the hose, and then the rest of the work can follow. Love a good hose analogy. Especially when it involves maybe spraying the hose around and running through it just for fun. Yeah. How often do we decide it's valuable to do something just for fun? (sighs) Right? Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you if you would share more about your organization for young men. Tell us the name of it. Yeah, it's Rocky Mountain Rights. Rocky Mountain Rights. And you can find more information about Rocky Mountain Rights at rockymountainrights.com. And that's rights, R-I-T-E-S, rights of passage. Beautiful. Yeah. Is it safe to say that your work in starting Rocky Mountain Rights was born out of a sense of wanting to give beyond your personal business? Was it driven by a search for fulfillment in a certain area? How did that organization come about for you? Because you you started it. I'd love to hear how it started and the kind of work that you're doing there. Yeah. So Rocky Mountain Rights started in early 2021 when I met one of my best friends, Garrett Braun. And we were together. We were building a yurt together. <laughs> A Mongolian yurt <laughs> along South Boulder Creek. Cool. And we just we just met and we worked really well together on this project. And he was telling me about this young men's rite of passage that he'd been to in Canada the previous year and how he wanted to do that here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I said, sign me up. Let's make it happen. And, and so the two of us just dove in. And for me personally, it's two things. It's a selfish component of an opportunity to be a leader in the community and to grow in my own personal development as a leader, as a leader of men, as a leader of young men. And the project as a whole seeks to meet a need in the community for healthy examples of masculinity for especially young men. My perception is that the healthy balance between strength and structure and discipline with emotional intelligence and connection and empathy, that's pretty hard to find in men these days in general. 
And I'd like that to be different. So I'm working on it by collecting a group of men every year to serve as examples of imperfect and wonderful masculine men and to serve young people in the community. Yeah. So we take them out into the woods and give them an opportunity to challenge themselves and to learn things and to have fun and to play games and to connect and to see men just being men, the best they can be with their flaws and their imperfections and their stuff, but just showing up as fully as possible as they are mm. and showing that we, as this group of adult men, value emotional expression and value authenticity and vulnerability and connection and honesty. Because I don't think you can really tell a young person what to do. I mean, you could tell them what to do all day long, but they won't do it. That I know to be true. But you can certainly show them who you are. Mm. And if that resonates with them, they'll take it with them forever. That is so powerful. And I think one of the stories that I heard that really inspired me to want to have some of these conversations was about a gentleman who was very comfortable financially and shared with his close friend that his head was hitting the pillow every night and he was feeling shame because when his kids asked him, you know, daddy, what do you do? He didn't feel like he had a good answer mm -hmm. because he knew that he was providing for them, but felt disconnected from who he was mm -hmm. and how he was showing up in the world and had a deep sadness around not feeling like he was modeling the best version of himself for his kids. Mm. And when we think about what we want to pass on to the next generation, if that's not a wake-up call equivalent to the shiny blue thing on the steering wheel, I don't know what is. Yeah, kids are that wake-up call for a lot of people mm -hmm. that I work with. Mm -hmm. I have one more question for you. What does the phrase good work mean to you? Good work is work that serves you and serves other people. If you don't have both of those ingredients, it's not good work. You're either selling yourself out to serve somebody else and suffering in the process, or you're doing something selfish. Mm. Now, I think it's somewhat rare that we truly do selfish things. And some of the most selfless things that we can do are when we say, I'm going to do what I want to do and hope that it serves others and inspires others. But yeah. Good work is work that serves you and serves other people. And I suppose doesn't hurt anybody in the process. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Do no harm along the way. Yeah. Max, if people want to connect with you and learn more about you, where can they go? Yeah, you can find me at coachmaximum.com. You can find Rocky Mountain Rights at rockymountainrightsrites.com. And I hope that you'll get in contact. Maximum Rosencrantz. I feel like since we're sitting here in person, we started with a firm handshake. I feel like we have to finish with one. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Love being with you. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening, friends. I'd love for you to join this conversation and hear your perspective too. To connect with us, head over to leahleonard.me and way to go. Good work. Good work.